This is FM Forward, a podcast brought to you by IFMA Boston. I'm your host, Jackie Fallow. If you missed the fact that we both started and finished season two, it's understandable. We let the pandemic take over. In season three, I invite you to join me as we seize the 11 core competencies of the facilities management profession by the horns and wrangle insights from real estate professionals that get real with us about leverage, learn the language of lean for solving problems and empowering people, navigate our way through the internet of things and analyze outsourcing, insourcing, and being resourceful. You won't want to miss out. I'm Jackie Fallon, and I want to welcome you to season three. If the universal language of love is kindness and of science, Latin, what's the universal language of facilities management professionals, I wonder? Arguably, one of the broadest categories of expertise under a single umbrella, the modern-day FM could use a little help communicating. From blue-collar to white-collar, behind-the-scenes building operations to C-suite, speaking the same language is fundamental to our success. Here with me today is Black Belt Lean Leader Melissa McEwen, of Haley and Aldrich, and lean methodology advocate, Phil Memmott, of Harvard Business School, to give us lessons in the language of lean thinking that can help you to increase work productivity. Welcome, Phil and Melissa. I'd love to hear the stories of how you were led to the language of lean. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for uh, having us today. Um, You know, lean for me has been an interesting mindset or a mind shift. We've you know, I got introduced to this at Wentworth and in my modern day construction delivery methods program, I think was the first time I got introduced to this. And it really just um, started to put for me on paper some um, foundational philosophies or some framework around how I started to think about problem solving. And um, I always think about something and how to fix it. And I'm not predisposed to the way it's been done in the past, but you know, there's got to be a better way of doing something. Um, you know, on top of that, I I really think about it as a connection to purpose and mission. Um, you know, we are <clears throat> all about mission and what's the purpose of the project? Why are we doing it? So having a connection to that um, is always important on projects anyway. Um, and then the other piece that really is something that I push on a lot on my my day-to-day and my the project managers that work with me will attest to this, is visual management. Visual management is something that is in lean through and through, and um, it's the biggest thing about keeping problems visible, making things transparent, and just exposing areas where other people can add value. I think that's what kind of brings me to lean. Mm, I think I think that's so interesting. And, and purpose and vision are fundamental to productivity, which I know we're going to talk a little bit more about today um, as really one of the primary responsibilities of a facilities management professional is really around workplace productivity. So I'm excited to hear what you have to share regarding your story about becoming a black belt, Melissa. Thanks, Jackie, and thanks for having me. It's uh, This is fun. I So I, I think discovered lean uh, in business school, but that is not when I actually um, became a passionate advocate and practitioner 
Uh, rather, when I uh, returned to Haley and Aldrich, we had just begun on a lean journey as an organization. And what I started to see was this amazing method for helping people learn to see. Uh, I'm a very strong personality. I'm a, uh, I have I wield a lot of influence sometimes. I like to convince people of things. And what I discovered mm-hmm. with Lean actually is a way to have to advocate less. It is um, this eye-opening sort of methodology and a way of engaging people that helps everybody see uh, a whole system. And uh, along the way, I realized it's such an incredible effective method for problem solving, for communicating as you set up. And so the more I learned, the more I tried it, um, I, I never looked back. Uh, and it really has been, been a game changer for me in my career. Oh, I think that that's so great. So I never played poker. I'm not a not a gambler, but I love the <clears throat> idea and the visuals around, you know, pushing all your chips to the middle of the table and betting on something. And so I'd like to have you hang with me on the analogy of gambling. And (laughs) if you had to tell our FM listeners why they should push all of their chips to the middle of the table and bet on lean, what would you say to them? So I guess for me, it's the single best approach I've found to bring people together to solve problems and speed up learning. There's so much focus on collaboration these days. There's so much change coming our way. Our interactions with our customers are more complex. And so if you knew that you had the ability to create the capacity in every person in your organization to be a better problem solver and learn faster, that's worth an all in bet to me. I think that the challenge you have is, um, and being a, a risk-averse person myself, <laughs> Melissa and I had some fun with the, the analogy that you uh, just shared on the poker game. Um, we'd probably be terrible at playing poker with each other because we'd be <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum here. But, um, you know, being risk-averse, you'd, you know, you um, assess how big the project is and how big the application is. And y- you don't want to jump into it and just say, I'm going to do it all in. Um, you know, my, my opinion would be to, you know, learn a little bit about the, the project, learn a bit about the opportunity. Um, and if you've not done Lean before, and this is a plug for, you know, Melissa or anybody who's, you know, a, a coach in this world is talk to a good coach, right? This is not mm-hmm. a, it's not something to just jump into and expect immediate results. Um, you know, we, when I was first introduced to this, I started to learn about little things here and there. And, I would say that you want to just look at the ways you can apply it first before just saying I'm going to do it as my underlying methodology for attacking a problem. And I will say, while Phil and I might be on opposite ends of the risk spectrum, I totally agree with him that you don't have to go all in. So while you did set that up, Jackie, right, um, in the analogy, I Phil is spot on that just stick your toe in, just try something, just experiment a little. Um, in fact, we would often recommend that you don't go all in. It's There's just too much for yeah. most people in most organizations. There is. It, it's, an inten- it's intimidating to think about um, everything and all the tools and all of the language and the acronyms that people use. And 
Um, I know I did. Um, you know, I've been on this, we call them lean journeys. People, you know, people in who are working with lean methodologies, they talk about their journey. And, you know, I've been on my lean journey for, what, six, seven years now. And I still don't feel completely comfortable with something called an A3. Like an A3 is one of the most, you know, I think complicated problem solving tools ever, but it doesn't stop me from trying to use it. And I think um, if you have an interest in doing something in lean, um, take something that you know how to do. Is it, um, you know, planning a barbecue or is it planning, um, you know, I'd like to use the, um, the wedding example, right? If you were to have to plan a wedding, would you be able to use lean for some kind of approaches there? Um, and if you've already planned your wedding, if you're married and you've gone through that process, you'll see opportunities to be able to use lean to make life a little easier for yourself. Absolutely. Oh, that's really interesting. So I was, in fact, planning on asking if there was a single tool um, that really could solve a problem or many organizational problems or really, really big problems. And then I thought to myself, you know, what of the small problems, too? You know, sometimes people will say, well, that methodology or that delivery doesn't necessarily fit the project challenge or project size. So I'd love for you both to share your different perspectives on what ways you think particular tools can make a difference, regardless of the size of the project problem or issue. All right. I'll think about that one first. I think that... um, So one thing for me is um, that is the beauty of Lean. It's not a single tool, and it's not even always about the tools. It really is this way of empowering people to solve problems, to learn to see, to get to root causes. And it it creates um, really a cultural uh, shift. But when you – there are some amazing tools, and there are some I use all the time. um, And – One of them would be this concept um, that, and it works for problems big or small, Jackie. I think that's why I like it so much. Um, So the dorky Japanese terminology for it would be this concept of going to the gemba, the place where the work happens. And so maybe piece of advice number one would be never use that Japanese word again now that I've just said it out loud. (laughs) But, (laughs) But the concept of going to see what's actually happening. I mean, how often do we sit in conference rooms and talk about what happens Mm. out in a maintenance environment or talk about what happens on a construction site or talk about how our customers use their spaces? How can we possibly solve problems from the conference room table? Like, So getting out and engaging and going to see with eyes that are just for looking and understanding, that is a very powerful lean tool um, that can be applied to tackle any kind of problem, big or small. And, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the the best thing about that is people do that and don't even realize they're doing it. Um, you know, I used to have a extremely traditional manager uh, many positions ago that would just walk around the office and talk to you and spend time on the phone talking to architects or engineers and in my early stages of my career, I'm like, God, what is this guy doing? <laughs> he does no work. He gets no product delivered. But at the same time, he was always knowing what was going on in a, either the industry 
or whether this estimator or that project manager was working on a problem or not a problem or was just you know, managing whatever workload he or she had. So I think the, the, ch- ch- <laughs> the Japanese term, as you mentioned <laughs> it there, Melissa, is uh, going to gamba, but you know, just managing by walking around is, is the layman speak for going in and looking and learning about what's happening around you and adjusting what you've got to do from from there on out. So I think that's great advice. And I want to make sure that our FMs, because they come from so many different vantage points on the ladder, understand if this is really for them or is it all about a big boss? You know, if I'm a, you know, engineer inside the building, I want you to talk a little bit more specifically about how that applies to me and what I'm doing, or if I'm a middle management professional, is it still possible to do this and use this approach and or tools to manage up and down that ladder? Um, Again, thinking about it in the framework of a language that really enhances communication. So I think, you know, I'm just going to go back to the tools thing we were talking about. And, you know, I see, my, see myself as somewhat of a avid weekend warrior. Um, mm-hmm. Yesterday started a major project on a new house. So I'm like, you know, I want to be in there doing the work and I have to step away from the contractors. But the reason I, you know, <laughs> my role obviously tells me that I'm going to be a control freak and wants to, you know, control what they're doing. But, um, you know, the, the analogy when I was thinking about this and, and, and what I do is I've been doing projects on my home for six, seven, eight years at this point. I only just bought myself a table saw, which was about, you know, three or four weeks ago. Um, or maybe in this COVID fog was maybe six months ago. I don't know. But we are we. I've done so many projects on my the homes and properties that I've lived in and, and loved without a table saw because I've been able to figure out other tools to do it. And I think that's kind of gets to the the root of your question there, Jackie. Of how how do I find a tool that I know how to use and just apply it and just apply it to something that I need to f- solve a problem for? So you know when you think about Somebody who's in the in the in the building working on a on a facilities management piece or something. I like the idea of you know shipping and receiving, and maybe shipping and receiving have a problem of things coming in too quickly, or uh, they can never find the um, the the scanner gun when it come when the the pallet comes in and they need to scan it. So there's a tool within um, Lean for five S, and it's each of the S's stands for different things to organize your workplace, and. You know, even if you spent 20 minutes reading about 5S and just started to think about that, um, as a shipping and receiving manager on a dock, you don't need to be a part of a culture of a business that is thinking lean. It's just improving your own work area and your own work product is what I would advocate for there. I love it. It, it reminds me of my first, or I guess it was my second job when I was 12. I was a pot washer, and I had a whole process that I mapped out around my sink how many pots I could wash. All the hot ones had to go on the ground next to my sink. Then how many I could wash before I had to change the water. Then the rinsing station. Then the drying station. And that allowed me to do what I wanted to do, which was turn around, watch the chefs make the food, and learn how to cook 
from watching them while they messed up the pots. That's it, right? So, I mean, if you're in your own kitchen at home, the glasses always go in the same shelf. The silverware always goes in the drawer where it's supposed to go. So you already know these skill sets. It's just applying it in a commercial or in a in a business sense. Because can you imagine if your glasses just got put away at the next available shelf in the kitchen? <laughs> you, your wife and yourself would be having God knows how many challenges on this. Where's the glass and where's the knife and where's this? So when you think of it like that, I know my wife and I do, but our kitchen's pretty well organized. So when you get to that point of, well, it's always in the same spot and you can always find what you're looking for there, then it becomes, you know, easier to work in that area. That makes it so much more understandable. It's really funny that we've gone down these two food analogies because I'm working with a lovely client right now and uh, in the uh, electrical contracting space and We've been introducing really simple concepts around workplace organization, which Phil talked about in 5S, and just having standardized work guides and visual guides for doing things. And the uh, person who has absorbed this the most rapidly comes out of the restaurant industry. And it was just so the tools are so universal because they are about learning to see, making things visual. Um, standardizing what needs to be standardized to free up the space for creativity and innovation and problem solving, right? Jackie, you wanted to learn from the chefs, so you figured out a way to standardize the stuff you needed to get done. Um, And uh, the Mm -hmm. universality of lean, whether you're a building engineer or the CEO of a real estate uh, uh, company, the the methods and the tools, they're just, they are so universal. Um, And Starting at that space of what you can control, as Phil said, just tackling something right in front of you is the best place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you use the word universal because I think that also speaks to the fact that when you start to think in this process-oriented way, it's easy to communicate that to people at all levels of the organization. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get at the heart of communication. So, you know, let me ask you um, in what ways you think that this approach brings a focus and clarity to the work that the FMs are doing. We've touched a little bit on some of the elements, but let's dive in deeper to that. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, the Lean is all about understanding who the customer of something it is. It could be the customer of a process. It could be Mm. the customer of your institution or your organization. Uh, It could just be the next person in line who you're going to be, you know, handing something down to. And there's nothing that brings clarity and focus, at least to me personally, like really deeply understanding and thinking about who is it that I'm doing this for? Why am I doing it? What matters to them? And it's so easy to lose sight of that in our day-to-day work. Um, And so that, I think, maybe jumps out to me as one of the most powerful ways that lean thinking brings clarity uh, to somebody and focus. Yeah, I think the uh, clarity and focus you think of a sporting analogy and, you know, they, uh, the ones where football players are going down the tunnel onto the field and they always have that kind of 
mantra or that we're all champions and you know or walking out of a hockey locker room down the tunnel to the ice and they, they've got the same thing there um i think they all they're all following that is their mission right they're, they're all following that mission and saying well, this is what we're going to go do and it's no different in in the uh, fm world um you know fm for me is all about service right so you've got to provide the best level service that you can with what you've got and um you know you're not going to get bigger budgets in facilities management. So you're always going to get squeezed on budgets here or there. So if you can make a, a better run at being more efficient with the same amount of um, budget that you've got, these tools can help you do that and, and focus in on that. Um, you know, I, th I think lean as a terminology or lean as a name gets a bad rap, right? It, it really jumps into this, well, it's just this voodoo language that I need to have this guru helping me out with it. And uh, I think that's one of the things that Melissa and I are trying to say today is that it's not necessarily meant to be intimidating and it's meant to just help you be better at what you do. Yeah. How can process or continuous improvement, you know, get such a bad rap? I think it's so it often gets um, spun in the language of efficiency and cost cutting and do more with less. Like if I never hear that phrase again, I will be thrilled. Um, and listen to the, the what those words mean. They're not the words of continuous improvement at all. They're very like dead-ended words. Um, continuous improvement is it's empowerment. It's making things better. It's having enough respect either for yourself or the people in your system to want to change and not just stick to the status quo when you're frustrated and dissatisfied. That's innovation, finding new ways of doing things. So it, it really has, I think, because it's so often associated with process efficiency. Mm -hmm. But it's not for the process efficiency just for the sake of process efficiency. No, and I think, you know, the best part about it is where, does it, where do the best continuous improvement suggestions come from. It's from the people who are doing the work. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you get those continuous improvements when you go to Gemba or you, you know, manage by walking around and you ask the person that's doing the, you know, rec receiving of a pallet onto a dock of, okay, so now what do you do with that? And why do you do it that way? Um, and, you know, maybe at first you're seen as this, you know, cold auditing style person saying, I can, I, I can make it better for you. Um, when in fact they're saying, well, how do you want to make it better for yourself? It's up to you to be able to, you know, if you don't like the way something's done and you think there's a better way of doing it, nobody else in this organization is doing your role, likely. Um, how do you want to do it better? And how is it, how is it uh, possible to make it that way? These are really, really great insights. When I think about the two things that you mentioned, first, the, the money thing, right? And, and second, you know, why be more efficient thing. I go back to this idea of productivity and employee engagement and feeling like you have a purpose and are energized by the work, not frustrated by the work, not demoralized by the work. These tools that you're talking about actually help enhance all of those you know, uh, characteristics, I guess, of the working day environment, which I think is amazing. And I guess the flip side for me of the money coin is nobody has to know that 
you're doing so much more with less. It's not like you're handing that budget money back over <laughs> to them, right? Um, and, and perhaps you are. Perhaps you're using it in different ways. Perhaps you're moving it around and putting it into a different bucket. But it actually opens up so many possibilities. So I love for you to share with me your thoughts on that because I'm not the expert. So, I, you know, the one thing you said there is about engagement. And, I, you know, when you think about continuous improvement, I said it before, is the people who can give you the best examples is are the people who are doing the work. And I think if you're giving, if you're empowering those people to make an improvement to their working environment or make an improvement to their working tasks, um, I think it's better all around. You know, I, I've been fortunate enough to uh, have a job that is something that I love getting up for and going to work in the morning. I do fun stuff, but also I'm offered some level of autonomy to be able to uh, improve my work uh, flow and improve my ways of doing things. Um, and I think if you can get to that level in a culture, whether it be on a project, in a team, in a company, um, you will increase that level of engagement by of people if you can give them some level of empowerment of what they're doing. Sure, agency it, over their own existence. Exactly. And I think um, one of the things for me is that I actually think that happens a lot, even in environments where maybe people don't have that explicit autonomy or feel like they do to make change. Improvements are happening all day, every day in an FM world. Every time I work uh, in an FM environment, I see them. But what I discover is mostly they remain hidden. People don't know they're happening. Phil's wonderful improvement that he's made is hidden in Phil's world. And it never makes it to Melissa's world or Jackie's world because we're not set up to share information that way or celebrate those improvements. And in some cases where there's like a disincentive, I'm just going to make this better and not tell anybody, maybe because there's a fear that I'm breaking with tradition or something like that. So it's I think that makes it so tricky. But for me, that is the power of lean. Once you start to uncover problems and engage your workforce, you will see the improvements they're already making. But then you as a leader have a um, a lot of responsibility to then act on those and make them visible and bring them forth in the organization. Yeah. Um, I think you have your moral obligation to, yeah. to get to that. And, you know, as the cliche goes, sharing is caring, right? You know, jumping or getting to information quicker is often seen as like information's, you know, power and I can control everything if I know things. But one of the things I try and instill in, in teams that I work with is just we're all here doing the same thing. And it gets back to that mission thing, right? We're, we're all trying to work towards the same thing. Nobody's here trying to better their career by one thing or the next. It's We're all here for the you know, sake of the, the project or the department or the team. So it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And while I don't think that you would necessarily take the aggregate of these best practices, because so many of them are tailored very specifically to a particular process or project or department, there are many lessons that you can glean and say, oh, but if I tweaked it in this particular way or that particular way, all of a sudden the challenge that I've been faced with can be eliminated. And that's pretty exciting. And if it gets kept a secret, that won't happen. Yeah, 
one of my favorite tools for all things in in lean is the plus delta conversation and you know when i started here at hps i I used to go to this meeting every two weeks and we went through a project status report and we would talk about what's going on and who's got what. And we invariably ran over time and people <laughs> had to either, you know, started with 20 minutes per person, then we got down to 30 seconds per person. And it, it was, you know, so unfortunately when I got handed the keys to the meeting and said, hey, you've got to run this now, um, I did this plus delta at the end of the meeting for the first few months and said, okay, well, what don't you like about this meeting? And what do you like about this meeting? And, and let the people who are in the meeting somewhat develop what we talk about. Um, and, you know, we still now meet every two weeks, but there are different tools and different conversations we have in that meeting instead of just the, the way it was 12 months ago. Mm. So, you know, if I was to say if I have one favorite tool, it comes back to that kind of plus delta of, it allows people to start talking. And I will tell you, the first time you do it, it is the most painful experience in your <laughs> life, standing up in front of you know 15 or 20 of your coworkers or team, team members, and nobody wants to say anything. Everybody wants to sit there in quiet. And you know, so you have to put some uh, humility into it. You have to put some vulnerability into it, and you, you get there. I think that vulnerability is so uh, important. Uh, a, a lot of lean, and where often organizations struggle culturally is it actually has to be okay to make problems visible, talk about them, not be afraid of blame. Um, and a plus delta is a really like simple, not too uh, alarming way to just start to get comfortable. Okay, what could have gone better about this meeting um, and get people starting to talk about it? Because otherwise people, like you said, Phil, they were leaving that meeting hating it before or with all kinds of thoughts on how to make it better. And um, you you set the stage to make it okay to talk about problems and right. try to make them better. You know, if you if you want to get back to the roots and the, the philosophy behind Lean, you, you know, and people are always associate Lean with Toyota, right? Toyota is the Toyota production system or the TPS is kind of the, the um, uh, grassroots of where Lean came from, I guess. Um, and it's still seen today, but that idea of making problems visible. So if you've ever had the chance to, to go to a Toyota production facility uh, or manufacturing facility, um, they make problems very visible and make anybody in the production line available to make it visible that there's a problem. Um, and I'm going to look at Melissa here for confirmation, but I believe they call it the undone code. Mm -hmm. So the undone code is available for anybody to pull at any one time, and it will stop the entire uh, manufacturing line of the car or product that they're working on. And the point of that is, um, or at least the, the the piece that I take away from it is, if somebody doesn't uh, make a problem known and people cover it up and keep going, that car can go off the production line with, with a defect mm -hmm. and it can either be a fatal crash or it could be something else, or it could come back to the production line and they now have to dismantle that car and they have to do... Uh, more work on a, on a product that's already finished. And, you know, getting through the philosophy of this is I don't want to redo work. That's waste, right? And so not to get too kind of uh, surgical on the whole lean language, but that, that's waste and you don't want waste in a process. So if somebody is inherently hiding a problem or not making a problem known, it becomes a problem for the entire organization. And no matter how big or how small mm -hmm. that problem is, 
Um, so if you take that kind of away from this conversation that you have the opportunity to stop that car from going off the production line, then you know maybe that's a, a bigger analogy, but it's it's what I kind of think about when I think about making problems aware visible. I think that's a great analogy. And because I'm in construction, I can see how that would apply to, you know, work that's being put in place on the job site. Do you totally. want to bring that analogy right into play in, in your world there on the site so people can see that it does, in fact. <laughs> Both Melissa and I just fell off our chair. It happens. Where to start? Where, where do we start? You know, it's it, not just the factory floor. No, no. I just told somebody today, you know, construction might be a craft industry, but you've got to take a, a mass production approach to it as much as you can. So, I mean, it's it, there's so many situations. I, it, some of it, uh, like, I, I mean, examples abound, right? Like, think about one small uh, waiting for a decision in design uh, or, uh, you know, not getting the right specification early enough. And we just we just keep passing it down the line. Uh, and it can even be even, I don't have the information yet, but I want to slow the process down. So I'm just going to push that. I'm going to keep the process going. I'm yeah. going to pass it to the next person without the right information. Mm. And it makes it from, you know, the owner to design to uh, it gets out into the, to the CM and the field. It finds its way into the um, electrical contractor shop where they're fabricating. And so they just design what they think is appropriate. Then we get it out into the field and it's wrong and there's yelling and there's screaming. and Or we don't notice it. We just put it in knowing it's wrong. And then we push it down the line um, to the amazing uh, maintenance supervisor who's going to manage that building um, yep. for yep. perpetuity. And I mean, I'm sure your listeners can think of hundreds of examples yeah. uh, I, of that. <laughs> the most simplest one I, lo I love to talk about is maybe an outlet, right? So we're sitting in a room and there's a few outlets on the wall here. And, you know, it, <clears throat> the, the basis of an outlet is 18 inches above finished floor. And that's usually where an electrical outlet or service outlet goes. Um, but what happens if it's a countertop outlet? And that was a marked on a plan, right? So the electrician goes around and he puts in all these, you know, he or she puts in all of these outlets all the way around room 18 inches. But actually, you know, two out of the six that were on that wall were supposed to be at counter height at 42 inches or 40, 54 inches. And they don't, and you know, nobody picks up on that. And they mount the box and they sheetrock the wall and they tape the wall and they, you know, start painting the wall. Then the cabinets come in and the casework comes in and he says, why have I got outlets behind where the casework needs to go? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now you've got to stop production. So you've got to slow things down. Then you've got to rework stuff because you've got to pull the old outlet out and you've got to patch that wall and then you're going to move the box up in the wall and you're going to cut through a wall and you're not going to be able to put a box in there. You're going to have to put an old work box in there. You know, you just get a poor, a lower quality product because and, of that And it sounds like, Phil, you're involving three additional trades. So you've got to bring He's at least three trades back to the, the site to do the work and reschedule all of those components of it. Oh, yeah. And then these proje projects today have all the time in the world, right? So, right. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about schedules at all on projects these days. But those are, those are the things that, you know, as an owner, I have no time for as far as coordination goes. You know, why is somebody not asking the question? You know, maybe it was an apprentice electrician that was just following a plan and didn't feel safe putting his or her hand up. That's the problem, you know, that I think most of these project teams face is that they don't want to be the source of the problem. And, and in fact, you're not the source of the problem. You're just making a problem known and we'll fix it as a team. It's not, 
the, you know, the blame game starts afterwards. If it costs money and if it causes problems, you know, and but I think the blame game should not be called that. It should be really an opportunity to learn from, well, why was it done like that in the first place? And you can get again into the lean language of five whys and say, well, why did it happen? And why did this do that? And why did you do it this way? So there's opportunity there to, to learn and just make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, our in construction, Jackie, right? Even we contract with the assumption that things are going to go wrong and there's going to be yes. rework and we're going to have to do it over and over again instead of sort of really tackling it at the source, you know, as far upstream as we can with Phil as an owner, right, and his team and really how we set the conditions to begin with and set the behavioral expectation that we don't want to do it that way anymore. Uh, and that's, I think the industry is working very hard on that, um, but it's 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 a hard change and it's going to take time. Absolutely, particularly since uh, the construction industry has been largely unchanged for over a century. And so it, that's not going to happen overnight, but I want to stay focused on the FMs. And I, I did hear you say something interesting, which I don't want to lose track of, Phil. You talked about safety and feeling safe to be able to um, reveal maybe flaws or defects in either the work or the process. And, you know, nobody wants to be the messenger that gets shot. So what mechanisms are in place within the lean structure to allow for that to happen? I don't know whether there's a formal, I mean, Melissa may be able to tell you if there's a formal structure there, but I think it's culture. I think it's, you know, it's got to come from a culture of uh, inclusion, a culture of it's okay to be, you know, to, to bring up these problems. Um, I don't think it, um, you know, when we look at look at facilities management and, and, the, and the folks who work in facilities management here is, you know, they have some autonomy to know what they've got to do and how they've got to do their work. And they feel safe to come back and talk to people and say, hey, this isn't working or that's not working. I think there's a level of uh, civility and, and professionalism there that just needs to exist. And, um, you know, I know we're going to keep away from that third rail of construction, but construction doesn't necessarily always provide that, it's certainly on the on the site at the moment. So mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's what you've got to do is you've got to make sure that there's mechanisms for conversations of, hey, what's your problem? And, you know, I use the... I, mentioned the tool earlier about a plus and delta um, that could be a really easy stand-up tool to use if you're running a, a team of facility uh, technicians or uh, maintenance operators and just having a 15-minute stand-up on a Tuesday morning and say okay what happened this you know this last week what went well and it allows people to have a safe or sometimes fun environment mm. to share their challenges um, share their successes. And um, the other piece that I like is it keeps people accountable. You know, if you, if you once you start sure. to build that trust and build that ability to say, hey, this didn't work or that didn't work, you can then next say, hey, Mike didn't do this again. You know, we got to work on Mike's, you know, and, and Mike's in the room and say, oh, yeah, no, Steve did this. and we." <laughs> so if there's that level of humanity and culture, I think you go a long way to be able to, to do that. And you can achieve that, I think. I'm glad you went there, Phil. You can achieve it within your own team, though. So I think some people worry, oh, I don't organizationally, I don't know if we're there yet. Every single person in our culture is uh, open, 
about problems and it's okay to talk about them and make them visible. Um, in some organizations, that is really hard. And um, But you can do that um, within your own team. You could do it within a team of, you know, the maintenance supervisors. Um, you could do it within just a project team. You can do it at a, at a building level. Just the team in this building and this organization has committed to working this way. And you'll be in the best position to know if you have the right people um, to do that and if you as a leader or a member of the team can kind of bring that forward. Yeah, I think just to add to that quickly is more on the professional development side is you're responsible for your own brand. Right. So, you, yes, you work for an organization and you may work for that organization for you know, 20 years, 30 years. But at the same time, you're responsible for or I'm responsible for Phil Mehmet's brand and, mm. you know, how I'm looked on in the industry and how people know how I work and what they can expect from me and things like that. And you're no different because you're going to interact with people on a daily basis in facilities management. So, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're in charge of your own destiny for some extent there. That's a really good point. Um, again, I think it's it's so important for us as professionals, as individuals, to feel as if we can make a difference, even if it's in our own small way, in the small realm of what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And by repeating a lot of these actions, I feel like there will, in fact, be a ripple effect that starts to spread beyond that realm. And, I, and I'm excited by that idea. Absolutely. So I want to ask if there's ever a time where by thinking this way or using one of these tools that all of a sudden you go, well, this project's not going to work. We're not <laughs> going to do it after all. Um, scrap that, start over, begin again. Or... Maybe it just says, makes you realize that you need to pivot in some way. Maybe it's not scrap the whole thing, but take a different direction. I think that happens all the yeah. time. Like, it's yeah, actually absolutely. harder to think yeah. of times when it didn't happen. Um, and I think that pivot word is a good one, Jackie. That another sort of lean-ism is this concept of, you know, plan, do, check, adjust. And I've talked a lot about learning to see uh, what the real problem is. So often our projects start with a, a symptom or a goal or a need. But what we discover is as we employ lean thinking, oh, it's different than what I thought. What my customer wants is not what I thought. Or the, the symptom I was seeing has a root cause problem that lives somewhere completely mm. different. So mm. this this plan I had to go solve it is going to fail right out of the gates and we need to adjust and pivot. And that happens all the time. Um, but it's that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I, think that, yeah, I think it's absolutely a great thing because I think that's a light bulb moment for a lot yeah. of people. A lot of people do when they when they experience that. It's like, oh, now I understand why lean's important. And, you know, it's made me realize, you know, one of the best things that this that Lean can do for you on a project or a decision-making is the removal of the unconscious bias decision-making mm -hmm. that people do. And they, you mm -hmm. know, often I think I like what Melissa just said is that, you know, you may not have understood the problem the same way the customer did. The customer may not understand their own problem. 
And, and they may be coming up with a scope and a project and a problem statement based on their own uh, opinion of and their own view of how something works and how something doesn't work. Um, when, in fact, you know, there's if you go and, and meet with the users and the, and the maintenance people and the finance people and the HR people and all the other people that touch the same problem, you may end up with a different project that you need to pivot towards because the person who initiated the project or has the power to initiate a project doesn't have the view of all of those other people. So it gives you this objective, defendable position to, to work from. I can think of an example with a uh, facilities team in a, uh, a college where they were embarking on bringing in some new software. And uh, because of how it was introduced, the, the perception was that the software was, you know, to provide information and reports to management. It was going to become this incredible management tool. And but it wasn't working and it wasn't being adopted. And what they actually discovered was the purpose was to get better information in the hands of the project managers so that they could communicate better with their leadership team. And, and the tool and the software was actually to serve them. And everything they had set out to do, they had to change once they saw it through that different lens. But it took some discovery of watching how people were using it, why they were struggling to use it. Uh, we had the wrong purpose to begin with. The whole project pivoted. I love that, that the term discovery, right? You know, they use it in the, in the legal world. Of, you know, we, go, we go into discovery on a, on a case so that we prepare for a case and we know how we're approaching it. And I think there is a level of discovery that's done on projects, um, but there's not a level, you know, there's a formal way of discovery on projects and you do the design and you, you go through that process. But in regular problem solving and in facilities management world, you often don't take the time to step back and go into discovery of what's the actual goal of the of the solution here. What's the what's the problem we're trying to solve for? Um, so that's kind of where I would like advocate for. It's that common platform, that language that allows people to really put all of their opinions into a system first before you go off and solve for a problem. And it can be so hard when that term, a project, once it started, who wants to be the one to be like, should we be doing this? Why are we doing this? But but we really should ask that more often. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, you know, going back to the Toyota thing, it's about you know, empowering people and everybody on the, on the production line has the ability to just pause it and ask the question or say, hey, there's a problem here. Um, so I think it's definitely something that will change and pivot a project if you use it at the right times. And the, the, the fear is that somebody comes along too late in the process and they try and change something and it's you, you, you've gone too far down a path. And then, that, then the challenge is, do we really want to spend the money, the resources, the time to fix it? Or are we going to go and let that car go off on the production line and hope for the best? Right. And in this case, the facilities management problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Recall, warranty. <laughs> right. And and it only gets bigger once you uh, allow it out the door. So, you know, I, I, I would advise against doing that. But in thinking back to the earliest part of the conversation and going to where the work is, understanding who the client and or customer is for the particular uh, problem or challenge that you're working on it speaks volumes to getting what you're solving for right. Um, so 
I, I think it's a really lovely full circle that we've come in the conversation. And as we um, prepare to wrap it up, I'd just like you both to share with our listeners um, a couple of tips for learning this new language um, that you think are fundamental. Perhaps they've, you've already shared with them during the course of our conversation and you just want to underscore them or maybe it's something new that you want to um, bring to the conversation. And I'd like to remind our listeners that we actually have quite a few additional resources that you can find on the website in the link to this particular podcast that Phil and Melissa have shared with us that will really help get you started on your journey. Yeah, if I was to if I was to say that there's three main kind of takeaways that I hope people get from this conversation is, you know, number one is that there's no silver bullet. There's no like, you know, magical thing that you just go and sign up for. You know, it's there's um, you know, it's just similar to a diet. You're not going to just sign up for an app and hope for the best, right? That's not how it works. It takes a little bit of uh, effort. I keep, keep hoping it will. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what do you mean? sorry to break it to you there. Um, oh, but you got different applications. You, you know, you it, it, it stood the test of time over uh, many years now. So just try it out and make sure, um, you know, there's different things. So following on to that, item number two is take your time. You know, don't expect it to jump all, jump in all at once and, and, and just do it and expect great results. Um, you'll pick and choose where you think you can do this. Um, and then the last piece, and we talked about this too, is just engaging your workforce. Again, learning from the people who are doing the work, both up and down the chain, right? Not everybody's at the top of the chain. If you think you're at the top of the chain, you're wrong because there's always somebody in front of you, <laughs> right? There's no, nobody's at the top of the chain. You know, um, not to get too controversial, but even the president of the United States still has people above him. It's called the people of the U.S. So, you know, it's an interesting, everybody mm. has a customer. It doesn't matter where you are. So engage your workforce, whether it's up or down the chain, and see, you know, how you fit into their system and what you need to do. Good those, point. Those are good, Phil. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, a couple to add, I agree with all of those, um, is start small. So this is a mistake. We People get so excited. They're ready. I, I read a book and I talked to Phil and I think Lean's going to change my life. I'm ready to go. And so, uh, you know, we'll get a call. So we, we think we'd like to tackle our turnover process. It's been broken for three decades. Um, everybody <laughs> on the operations side of the house hates it. Um, everybody in the design and construction side of the house hates it. So we think that's a good place to start with Lean. Maybe not. So um, start with something small and in your control because getting a quick win is so important both for learning there's so much learning that comes from a quick win um, and something in your control. So that's um, one that I see a lot. It's good for morale, too, to get a quick win. It, it, oh, we're doing the right thing. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> okay, that was good. Maybe you should uh, – let's talk about a piece of turnover um, and, and keep going. Um, another one that is so important to me, and I think especially in my experience in facilities and in construction and real estate, is there's this hesitation to go and learn from other industries about lean because we think we're so different and we can't 
possibly go into a factory or a healthcare environment and learn. But my experience has been um, I, I lead field trips of maintenance teams all the time into factories and plants. And, you know, I, I took somebody to a company that makes the surgical products for plastic surgery transformed how the maintenance team thought about how they organized their shop and how they could, you know, make things more visible. Um, so I would say don't be afraid to go outside your industry and see what other lean organizations are doing. Uh, the principles are so beautifully simple and universal that you will be able to see uh, and learn from those people. I think a lot of people think about um, business improvement, which is really what this comes down to, is yeah. improving your, your business acumen, is uh, I don't have time for that. I've got so much to do, yeah. right? And it's the, the age-old problem of I'm too busy. I don't have time to make a to-do list. It's like if you took 30 seconds that it would take you to write your to-do list, it would improve your stress levels and well-being tenfold. This is kind of the same thing. It's just... Absolutely. You know, we didn't talk about it today, and I think, you know, really almost every conversation should discuss it these days, is the idea of safety and how lean can really support a safer work environment, um, both because organization and cleanliness support that, um, but I think in a lot of other ways in this age of, of pandemic, you know, being systematized in a lot of respects is fundamentally important to our health and well-being. So I could see how this could apply. Do you think I'm totally off base? No, I, I think you're, I think you're, um, you, you're right on base. I think it's, yeah. it's not... Safety, um, you know, I think of a construction site, but, you know, again, something like a loading dock or, um, you know, a, a maintenance workshop or something like that. Um, it's If it's not organized and it's not uh, well thought out in a common language that everybody follows, then it's just going to be a mess. And if a, if a construction site or a maintenance shop or a loading dock is a mess, it's unsafe. It's inherently unsafe for people to walk through those spaces. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, if you if you think of it like that, you know, you look at a construction site. If I know it, if I'm walking through a construction site and it's a mess and the laborers are constantly cleaning it up, I know straight off the bat that there's not a great deal of lean uh, management happening there or there's a great deal of organizational management happening there. And if a lot about lean is making things easy to detect. I probably have said a hundred times today, it's about learning to see and making things visible. But if you can, if things are easier to detect, then you can um, catch safety issues and risks before they're happening. So um, that's one thought on that, Jackie. And then the other thing about safety that I think uh, is so aligned with lean thinking is safety is about a deep and abiding respect for life and individuals and humanity. And uh, that is at a core of lean thinking. And we should have um, that as a driving purpose in, in any of the work we take on mm -hmm. in facilities and construction, um, the safety of our workers, the safety of the people in our buildings. And um, we absolutely should be thinking about everything we do through that lens. And it does cause you to do that. I think, you know, when you look at making space uh, safe for other people to work in, 
is likened to, you know, when you think about a space and you're building a space out or you're maintaining a space, uh, you're not doing every trade, right? You're, you're going to have an electrician in there or a plumber in there or, you know, carpenter in there. And it's getting that person to have respect for the next person coming into that space. Mm. Um, because mm -hmm. if, if, you know, the first person comes in and makes a mess and says, oh, don't worry, some, the next person can pick it up or, some, you know, the next person can clean up my mess. The next person comes in and says, well, I got no respect for this space. It's a mess already. Let's, you know, just, con you know, I'll keep working in my style and then they can pick up. By the time the third and the fourth person gets into that space, it's just a, it's a, it's not clean. It's not safe. There's so much work to be done versus just cleaning up after yourself. And yeah. I sound like I'm talking to my six-year-old, but that <laughs> that is true. You know, cleaning up after yourself is important because um, it makes it an unsafe space if you are leaving your your work behind. And it's also inefficient. If you've got to go in and clean up your work area before you can work, it's no good for anybody. Couldn't I couldn't agree more. So Clorox wipe the buttons on the coffee machine when you're done with it for the next person. I couldn't think of a more apropos way to end the session with a talk about safety and wellness. I want to thank you Melissa and Phil, so much for this really engaging conversation. I thought it was fantastic, and I feel certain our listeners will too. We want to thank you for listening today. Visit ifmaboston.org slash podcast to see all of the show notes and any resources discussed in the episode. I'm your host, Jackie Falla, and this is FM Forward where if you're an FM, buildings are assets, and it's your job to keep people happy, or at least happily working. Until next time.